Hey there, you're listening to What the Riff? Join us as we remember the great rock and roll hits from a month between 1965 and 1995. We're going to riff on all things about the bands, the members, and the goings-on during that time. We hope to inspire you to find and download the songs you hear today, whether you're fans who forgot about some of these tracks or maybe never even heard them before. Check out our blog at whattheriff.com or follow us on Facebook at What the Riff. Here's a shout-out to our sponsors, Right Column Financial, offering CFO and bookkeeping services for small business, Stanton Electric, a commercial electrical specialist, and Marbury Creative Group, a brand development agency that helps companies tell it better. So let's turn up the volume and enjoy this episode of What the Riff? The first flight of the McDonnell Douglas F-18 Hornet. Irish Republican Army explode over 50 bombs in towns across Northern Ireland. And Anwar Sadat and Mahakam Begin sign the Camp David Accord, starting peace between Egypt and Israel. This is September 1978, and you're listening to What the Riff. I'm Wayne. I'm Rob. I'm Brian. And I'm Bruce. And Brian brings this album to us. What you got, Brian? I'm sure you already recognize the song and the band. I just say this is uh, our friends Boston, Don't Look Back, their second studio album that was released in 78. Of course, now you notice there was only a two-year gap between their original release of their, their super incredible album, their debut album, and this one. And that's really what started a huge legal battle between Tom Schultz, who was the producer and the, you know, the leader of, the, of Boston, and Epic Records. They kept pushing him. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to get the suck. We got to get it out. We got to get it out. And Schultz said, "No, I'm not ready." And then finally, they pushed him, put enough pressure on him that they released it, and it just started a huge legal battle to get them separated from Epic Records because Schultz wanted another song on there. He thought the sh- this, he thought this album was with eight songs was too short. Oh, and they said, "Tom, size doesn't matter." <laughs> and <he's> been, <laughs> That's what she said. That's right. And she, no. But anyway, that's in, 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 in fact, it was the end of their uh, relationship with Epic Records. And so I love this album, and the reasons being because it brings such great memories back for me. As we're wearing headphones today, it reminds me of the headphones with the nice cushions that I used to wear <laughs> and have that long wire dangling into the receiver and the turntable at the top of the stereo. Remember those old one-piece units? Yeah, I had one. And had the cassette, had the AM, FM, guys, had the record. I mean, my gosh, this thing, this whole thing, I'm already getting the chills on me. This put me to sleep so many nights of my teenage years. Well, and, and I'll tell you, this is this is a great song to listen to with headphones on. Oh. Because yeah, and falling asleep, it rubbed all of um, Brian's hair off, too. <laughs> right. You but know, it, but it's got that it's it's got that wall of sound if you're just listening to it. But if you've got speakers on, you can hear you know where the oh, where yeah. the cymbals are at and where these other where the guitar is coming in at. Listen, to that. this. Oh, that just kills me. Anyway, this album, you know, it was highly anticipated because of the success, like I said, the success of the first one. In the first month, this album sold over four million copies. In a month. In a month. People don't realize, used to, there were some people that put two albums out a a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this one took, what, three years to come out? Two. Two years, and then the next one took seven. 
or well, eight, or six, eight, eight years. years. If I recall correctly, they had like a a, a five album deal with Epic. And so, yeah, the legal battles, I can see that. Epic probably expected them to come out with one a year or more frequently. Yeah. Well, the record companies were in charge. I mean, yeah. yeah. And to be honest, I think that Tom Schultz could have used a little bit more power in the hands of the record company to push these things out. Right. You know, I'm curious, though. Do you know what what song was it that he wanted to put on, or was it just it, a it song? It doesn't mention it. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I can tell you this, though. They, they, the sales of this album went over seven-time platinum. Wow. So, I mean, just an amazing you know, success. This song was the most one of the most successful singles released. Mm-hmm. It was actually it went up to number four on the charts in Billboard 100. And, of course, they have some other albums or other songs off this album that they released, but this is by far the most successful. It's such a positive song, too. Yeah. I love this Don't Look Back, you know? Yep. You know, the original the original title for the album was not going to be Don't Look Back. It was going to be a, an album that they wanted to call Arrival. Oh, okay. But they found out, and right before they wanted to put it on the, 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 uh, the album, they said, oh, that's right, ABBA has already released an album called Arrival. Oh, oops. So they had to go back and they said, well, let's just call it Don't Look Back, which, to your point, was a positive, you know, finally see the dawn arriving, you know, finally see the road I'm driving. You know, it's mm-hmm. really positive and uplifting. Well, if you, it goes with the, the, the album cover. That first album cover, if you remember, was these guitar-shaped yeah. uh, spaceships, and the first one had the city of Boston on top. Yeah. And now this one actually shows them like on a planet or somewhere and scouting for a place to put the city of Boston at. And so it's the same guitar, but it was the city on top of that. That's Mr. Schultz right there. I I want to call him Mr. Schultz because of my respect for his musical talent. So... The next song we're going to hear after this Classic. one, of course, is, if you have the album, you know what I'm talking about. There is no break. Now, you may hear a break today because of the way we're you know, recording the tracks. But similar to the Pink Floyd or some of it's, you know, it's a con- you have that concept where it continually plays and flows between songs until it gets to uh, one of the things that we're going to do. Now, we're playing all four songs on the first side of the, of the album, I'm going to call it. because So it's a concept album? Not necessarily, but in the in the kind of the same genre as the concept. This is not a concept album per se, but it has the same continuation. Yeah, you know, here. it doesn't break. It, does. it will here. Yeah. So now, yeah, okay. It has perfect. that ethereal yeah, look, sound yeah. again? So this is this is what's called the journey. And ironically, Schultz has said that this is his favorite song of all the you know the first three albums, because essentially it basically lets him go on a in a. A journey where he's above the clouds, flying in you know, ethereal, kind of very a, ethereal. Yeah, he's just, and he's, it's just such a peaceful thing. And and he had a complaint. Part of his complaint with Ep- Epic was he wanted this song to be longer. And again, they said, Tom, size doesn't matter. <laughs> so anyway, Tom was, you know, wanted this song to be longer. Uh-huh. And so, but if you listen to it, and this is thinking back, you know, when you had your headphones on, you're trying to relax for the evening and go to bed. I mean, well, it's sort of like the beginning of Long Time, you know, yeah. when you have that little instrumental before that. I mean, just well, and you'll hear this theme come back on the album Third Stage in 86. Yeah. Of course, you'd have to wait eight years for that to happen, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. That's right. So, just a peaceful, 
serene type you know, peaceful, easy feeling. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fry. <laughs> well, does this bring back memories for you guys as well? At that time, you know, in the teenage years, and you're just oh, yeah. jamming and just. Mm. Well, this is the concert I went to go see them at. Uh, okay. This was, they had both albums out, and I think they played both albums. Uh, obviously, my favorite is the first album because almost yeah. every song I like, we kind of talked beforehand. I'm sort of like, okay. We've got about half the amount of songs on these that I like, but you obviously you you grew up with it more, so you enjoyed this a, a lot better. It kicks in, though. Here we go. I just love yeah. that kick. Just... Now, this is a deeper cut song. Yeah. Both The Journey and, and this one are, are deeper cuts. Yeah, it, this one's not released. They only had three singles released off this album. Of course, the title track, Don't Look Back. Right. A Man I'll Never Be, which we're going to hear after this one. And then uh, feeling satisfied. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned, don't look back. Went to number four. Feeling satisfied was number went up to forty six, and then the, for a uh, man I'll never be was number thirty one. So it didn't. There was some success, but just this, this one. It, I don't know what it is. It just flows so well, uh, you know, from song to song. To, oh, song. Remember, this is still album oriented rock. This was oh, yeah, FM. This was not AM like like I've talked before. Where you listen to the the top songs, you, you really the, they were they kind of crossed over it a little bit, obviously, but they were more of a an FM studio type of type of group. Yep. Well, yep. it's interesting the progression too, because when they came out with the first album, it was the the sound was so different that it became known as the Boston Sound. Mm. You know, and by the second album, everybody's anticipating it because. You know, it, they've they've gotten used to the first album and that sound, and so now they're kind of in their heyday with it. Yeah. And well, the, go ahead, Brian. No, no I was to go ahead. I, what, did, I think when we covered Boston before, we talked about Tom Schultz being such a perfectionist. Yeah. Can you imagine the pressure of the success of the first album? Right. And then you know, no wonder he was taking his time. Yeah. Well, to your point, and. It, Epic is saying, we need it, we need it, we need it. we got to release it, we got to release it. He's saying, hold on a minute, and I'm not ready. And it just, it, that, it, that was just, you had two heavyweights battling and at each other. I get know. the idea of wanting to make sure it's ready, but eight years, folks. I mean, this <laughs> is the thing. This, this is what killed me with it. Boston has such a great sound, you know. They could have had three more albums between the time yeah. of the – of, of this album, Don't Look Back, and Third Stage. By the time they get around to 86, everybody is used to the sound. Yeah. We, things have moved on. We're in the MTV generation. It's it's a it's a different time and place. And that album, it's a great album, but it doesn't do nearly as no. well. Yeah, they didn't strike while the iron was hot. No, they didn't. And, and just to go back on that, there are a lot of groups that had albums. I, I, the Babies is one of them. Is there's two songs on it that are great. Mm-hmm. The rest of the album is, uh, you know, and, and that happened quite a bit. And yeah. all you needed was the two songs. Well, and, and here's the thing. I wouldn't want them to just do the, the standard corporate, here's two songs and a bunch of crap, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd want it to be Boston, but y- you need that tension. It's kind of like the Paul McCartney and John Lennon, you know. You've got to have that creative tension, and maybe you need that creative tension between the artists and the perfectionism and yeah. the 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 industry that says you've got a deadline we've got to make we've got to ship well there's a saying that uh perfection is the enemy of great yeah yeah that's true well to your point though about the eight year you know it was a, 
he was heavily involved in the legal battle, mm-hmm. so it did distract him. And to your point, yeah, it, it cost them. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. You know, strike while the iron is hot, and no, he's too busy battling to get his get his way. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but uh, I, I loved Rolling Stone when they, they reviewed the album. You know, we're talking about going into from the journey in this real, you know, science fiction or you know type thing, and all of a sudden you hit. It's easy. It's just they called it appropriately jarring. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like that? I do have to say these two songs are my favorite on the album because the way it builds up, that ethereal, and then just moves right into this rock and roll. And it really isn't that popular. And that's sort of kind of like it didn't get overplayed. And it it really, I love that part there. Just that, that is that acoustic. Ah. Now here's the first, like we said, now we get the break. Mm -hmm. And now we go. I love to hear Brandel's voice. I love this song. Yeah. And, Unfortunately, we lost Brad in 2006. He committed suicide. He had a, after a long battle with depression. Mm. And so Schultz wrote and produced all of the album. Now, Delp helped him with the uh, use of bad news and some other, you know, uh, works. But this, uh, it's just an, an interesting song to hear about how he's you talking about, you know, the positive of don't look back, mm-hmm. you know, going forward and moving forward. And now you have the contrast here. Yeah. It's kind of melancholy, isn't right. it? Right. You have, you know, this. you just, I'm not the man, you, I, I'm not going to be the man you think I am. I'll, I'll never be that person that you want me to be. Right. So. And, and I think, I think part of the reason that I like this is to Wayne's point that it's not overplayed. You don't hear this song as often. It's a little bit more melancholy. It's still got the Boston yeah. sound, but it's not, it's not as, as, uh, as well known. Is this the opposite end of, you know, once, twice, three times? No, not three times a day. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, oh, uh, the, uh, uh, two out of three ain't two bad. Two out of three ain't bad. bad. <laughs> it's the opposite side for the man's version. So, you know, so <laughs> it's an answer to, fle- to to the bat out of hell with uh, meatloaf. Meatloaf, yeah. But just to hear, I, I just... I knew I was getting close to the end of the album, so there were many times that I did not hear the end of this song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I love a, the piano work here too. Yeah. That's maybe that's what I like about it is I'm I'm always drawn to the piano pieces. Yeah, and uh, you've got some not just synthesizer, not organ here. It's the piano part. And all of the songs were recorded up in Schultz's Hideaway. Uh, studio up in Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. but this the piano piece was recorded at another studio. And of course, they you know, did the mixing, but that's really the, the only part of this album that was not recorded in Schultz's Hideaway yeah. studio. And I think we covered it when we talked about the first Boston album that they they had to kind of trick out the uh, record company. Uh, they wanted them to record this in Los Angeles, and uh, they actually wound up recording it in. And in Tom Schultz's yeah. location. So, how old were you guys when this was out? 1978. I was 14. Six, 16. Oh, jeez. I was 12. Uh, I was 11. And Mine went up to 11. <laughs> so, I remember just listening to Boston, and, and, you know, I had, for some reason, it made me remember I had a red t shirt with a Harley Davidson sticker on the front of it that, w- that had, like, it, it was 
remember the thick things that they would put iron-ons on your shirt? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah. And so it had like kind of this sparkle reflective kind of thing. It looked so cool. I remember going yeah. to seventh grade and I'm like. I had one of sticks. I'm like, that's what I'm wearing yeah. the first day of school. Got it at Spencer's Gift. <laughs> you know, it was the funny thing about this album, I borrowed it from a, a friend of mine who lived a block away. And let's just say he never got it back. <laughs> he never asked for it back, so I never give it back. No, what was the name of that friend? I remember Johnny, and I can't remember his last name. All right, Johnny, if you're listening. If you're listening. Sorry, Johnny. All right. Contact Brian. He owes, you, <laughs> he owes you your album back. That's right. Top hits of September of 1978. We went disco a lot. Boogie Oogie Oogie from A Taste, Taste of, of Honey. Honey. Yes. And... This is why I got confused. Three times a lady by the Commodores. Oh, yeah. Lionel Richie's coming into his yeah. own. I thought that was uh, Buckwheat that sang that. Oh. <laughs> Hot-Blooded by Foreigner. I'm, mm. We haven't done a Foreigner album yet. I'm, I'm, I may have to do the first one, but, of course, we've done the 70s so much lately. Hopelessly Devoted to You by Olivia Newton-John. Did you ever have a poster of her, Wayne? Not a poster <laughs> of her. I got an album. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want Kiss You All Over by Exile. Yeah. And the one of the big songs, Grease by Frankie Valli. Oh, I remember that was a huge, yeah. huge successful album and movie. This must have been when it came out. Then, yeah, I that guess. summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really propelled Olivia Newton-John instead of just a you know thriving music uh, musical artist into a huge superstar. Yeah. Well, John Travolta did well there, but he had—I believe—he had already done Saturday Night. He Fever did a year before. So. And then after he did that, Urban uh, he Cowboy, did, he did that, and then Urban Cowboy came out a year later. So he had three huge blockbuster movies in a row. I mean, right. he was at the top of his game. Now, if I recall correctly, the the Grease was a Broadway show, and the lead in the Broadway show was the second guy in Jeff the Conaway. movie. Is that right? Jeff yeah. Conaway. He played Kanicki in the movie. Because they said, yeah, you can't do the lead. we got John Travolta. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was obviously riding high at that time. Yeah, commodity. And Conaway was cool with it because he said yeah, yeah, he understood where they were coming from. But he, just to be a part of the movie that he knew mm-hmm. would be a huge success. And he and Travolta got along. He said, Travolta said it was a little uneasy at first from his perspective. But he said Conaway was very receptive and was very cool Gracious. about it, so it really made Travolta feel a lot better. Yeah. It was hard for me to watch the movie when it was all these people who were in their 30s acting like they're teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> but, Man, listen to that. Listen, listen to Delp's range here. Like you said, Bruce, a wall of sound. Oh, yeah. Now, Oregon. The Hammond Oregon there, yep. And then let's take it down for the end. You said something about the piano? Mm-hmm. Here it comes. Uh, <laughs> Brian's oh, asleep. Sorry, sorry. Put him to sleep. <laughs> that was great. Thanks for bringing that, oh, Brian. My pleasure. Now we're getting into our entertainment track brought to us by Wright Column Financial. And this is the title theme for WKRP in Cincinnati. 
And we won't talk much about that because we're going to bring it back again on our comedy feature. You can imagine what happened in the WKRP at that time. Yes, we're going there. <laughs> also, Battlestar Galactica came out. If Ooh. you remember that original oh, one. Oh, yeah. The Cylon. That was great. Taxi premiered also. I mean, we're talking about some big shows here that came out at that time. And one of the biggest, Mork and Mindy. Nanu Nanu. That's right. Spinoff from Happy Days. The second spinoff from Happy Days. Yep. Mm-hmm. Another thing is the chairs for Archie and Edith Bunker were given to the Smithsonian. Mm. Oh, yeah. That time. Yep. Now we're going to move on. Now we're doing staff picks. And we're going to go to Bruce on his staff pick. <laughs> There's some more piano. I mentioned I like piano, smile, didn't I? The piano man. And she can ruin your Listen to these lyrics. <laughs> I'm laughing. I have to share a story, but please go on. So, this is. She hides like a child, but she's always. She's always a woman by Billy Joel. This is off the album The Stranger. Uh, I believe it was the fourth single off of that album. Lots of hits. Did you know that The Stranger was? Is Billy Joel's best-selling studio album? Yeah, I would think oh. so. I mean, he... I didn't know that. He grew... Yeah, it was... Uh, I, don't, I don't... Glass House is... I would have thought... I, I would have thought uh, An Innocent Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would have thought that uh, The Piano Man, just because I'm familiar that with That was those. so early, though. Yeah. That, that, was, that was his breakout. So so this one this one is his best-selling studio... Uh, not Greatest Hits, but, but the studio album. Um, and the song itself is written for his wife, Elizabeth Weber. Um, she had taken over management of oh. uh, Joel's career, and she kind of got him back on track financially. He hmm. had signed some deals that were really not good and yeah. got into some legal trouble and things like that. And apparently she was a really tough negotiator a female manager yes probably unusual very unusual during the day and uh, a lot of her adversaries thought that you know this is unfeminine this is this is not you know you shouldn't be driving this hard things like that um and because of it billy joel wrote this you know that uh she brings out the worst the best and the worst you can be you know she steals like a thief but she's always a woman to me yeah (laughs) Is this a good time to tell my story? Sure, Tell your story. I was in ninth grade when this came out. I was dating a beautiful young lady by the name of Belinda O'Quinn. I think her name now is Belinda O'Quinn Reader. Belinda, if you're listening, hopefully you'll remember this. Thinking about I would be romantic in my terrible way as a young whippersnapper. I told her one time, I said, you know, this song reminds me of you because it was always based on you're always a woman to Uh, me. uh Little did I know the other parts of the song were not very flattering. (laughs) So when I told her that, she goes, really? (laughs) I said, yeah, you're you're always a woman to me. She goes, okay, thanks. (laughs) So sorry about that, Belinda. Just my ignorance of uh, only hearing the chorus and the, the title of the song. So God bless you. The most she will do is throw shadows at you. I got this. This was one that I played on piano. I got the sheet music to this. Oh, oh, wonderful. Love to hear it. So, oh, it's been a while. Well, we got the piano man on the database, so we'll we'll come back to come back to Billy Joel's later. Great memory, Bruce. Thanks. Now we're going to Wayne for the staff pick. And what are you bringing us, Wayne? 
I'm going to bring to you kind of something that's very chill. That's what I I think I call this. Yeah. Love the saxophone. You know, I had the privilege of seeing Mr. Al Stewart two Februarys ago at the City Winery. And if he comes back through, guys, yeah, you got to go. I, I do want to go. He is a fantastic performer. Well, he has four hits. I, I would say four hits on my end. There's probably there's really more than that, but... But in, in two years, he had four top hits. You may think this is similar to the his top hit. It was the year of the cat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was came out the year before. Oh yeah. And on that same album had on the border. Yes. And if you've ever heard the live version of on the border, there's a Spanish guitar on that that is just tremendous. Yeah. It, it cranks. And then on this album is time passages. Mm-hmm. And that's the actually the, um, the the album name also. So this is his eighth album, and this is the period of time when he was being produced by one of those great producers that we actually focused on as a album pick, one of our original album picks. And he did also Pink Floyd. Do you know the producer now? Alan Parsons. Alan yeah, Parsons. Yep. That's right. So sort of made him. He was originally this is Al Stewart's song on the radio. And this, initially he was more of like a folk guitarist. Mm-hmm. And then he picked up an electric guitar and he just started playing with electric guitar. He's playing with a bunch of different bands back in England. He was, he's, he's British. And now he's, he's sort of grown into this guitar guys. And guys, I kind of consider this type of music a precursor to the Dire Straits. If you think about it, that I, I, I can hear that type of, that that flow, yeah. it, it is to me. It, it's grooves. It's kind of mellow, but it's complicated. There's some twists and turns in here. There's some things in the background you can kind of hear going on. And so, uh, to me, this is one of those songs I we've talked about. I used to have a convertible, and I loved cruising on a a, a week a, a night that was real warm. And because it's not blistering hot, and you're not burning up and sweating, but it's warm enough to have the top down and cruise at night. And this is a type of a song that I consider yeah. doing this that. is this is cruising too. This is not pedal to the metal. No, this is this is uh, just just laying back cruising. And what's interesting is this song was sort of a one-off. He just uh, Artesia Records came to came to Al Stewart and says, hey, like, we like these songs with the, with, with the saxophone. We like these kind of mid-tempo songs. He goes, why don't you just do another one of those? And he just goes, oh, really? And so he just kind of writes this song. He really didn't put a whole lot of thought in writing it and everything. Just kind of put it out real quick. Just made sure that there was a big saxophone in this. Well, you can't go wrong there. You know. Exactly. And he was just joking around when he gave it to them and they go okay great and they put it out and they they pushed it and it got to number it was a top 30 song it was yeah. it was is a top song and so you know he was just making up things i mean we go collecting the days putting away the moments putting putting the moments away you're like you're on my mind like a song on the radio you just you know we talked about your know, songs do put you you know in that mood but I thought that was interesting, he, him talking about that. Listen to that sax. The sax is Phil Kinsey. He, um, he also played with Alan Parsons on his uh, album, uh, I was thinking that name sounds very familiar. That must mm-hmm. be where I'm thinking about it. And one thing I like about Al Stewart is he does not 
try to he does not like to repeat what he does. He does a lot of political songs. He does songs about time periods. He is he if you go and look at his catalog, it's it it's a wide range. You mean the subject matter. Yeah, subject matter, yeah. That is very you mentioned dire straits. That's very similar to Mark Knopfler. He writes a lot of kind of eclectic historical things. He's got one about McDonald's and he's got one Industrial about disease. Yeah, Mason and Dixon, the Mason and Dixon line, you know, things like that. Interesting. One thing I have a quote here, and I, I it, it is by Al Stewart, and he goes, I think of songs as cinema. It's an aerial cinema. You know, I want to show you a movie while I'm playing the song. So that's essentially what he's doing. And, and you know, it, it can be geographical. Uh, it's just it's whatever he inspires. He, he thinks he said that, you know, he could just open a world atlas and at random and whatever page he's looking at, he goes, there's at least six songs that occurs to him. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That's creative. There That's, are some that uh, that have that ability. It's a storyteller songwriter, yeah. you know. And that's where that folk music came in. That yeah. Obviously, you had storytellers back in the day, and that's what he does in his. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. For yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Gordon Lightfoot. That, yeah, that's mm-hmm. another one. Yeah. He, he. And I mean, believe it or not, people always thought that was his only song. No, there's songs way back in the day of Gordon Lightfoot. That are tremendous. Yeah. Did he still have this sound to his voice, Brian, when you saw him? He did because his range is very unique. Yeah, the range yeah. is the range is uh, is kind of a medium range. Yeah, it's it's now there were some changes, but yeah. to the point though, the pitch is about the same because huh. it's really not that difficult, right. in, you know, in the high range. But it's, it's not like Brad Delp or no. uh, you know somebody. But it's unique in terms of his sound. Yeah, it's very smooth. Now I do recall when he did this, he had one heck of a sax player with him because he wailed and he, oh, got, he got a almost the whole thing saxophone. Well, I know, That's the I mean, reason why. But the guy was so energetic and enthusiastic. I mean, he got a huge standing O on that one. It's oh, yeah. very, very, very well done. Thanks, Wayne. Not a problem. Now we're going to move on to our next staff pick. So what do you got, Rob? Listen to this riff. Everybody knows this one. Joe Walsh. Life's been good. Love me some Joe Walsh. What a great riff there. Joe Walsh was a superstar then. I mean, come on. So this was actually uh, on the 1978 film FM. It was on the soundtrack. And we're listening to the original version, which is a little over eight minutes long. But he made it uh, down to a four and a half minute single. And the single made it to number 12 on the Billboard 100. The album that he put this on is called But Seriously, Folks. If you remember it, he was underwater with mm-hmm. sunglasses on. And I don't know if you think about this, the Eagles play this. A good bit. Yeah, yeah. But this is Joe's song, and he wrote it after joining the Eagles. And so they play it a lot. And it was on the Eagles Live album from 1980. Do you remember that album? That was a phenomenal yes, that album. That album, yes. and I believe Joe Walsh was running for president at the time. That's right. He actually <laughs> has. But he wasn't old enough. 
Was he, was, he not? You had to be 35 or older, but he still, you know, tried to shake things up. Of course. Well, we would have passed a constitutional amendment to let Joe Walsh run things. That's right. You heard him there. He just said, they say I'm crazy. <laughs> but, yeah. Life's been good to me so far. I love his take. And a lot of his songs have this light touch mm-hmm. kind of humor. Yeah. He's winking at you. Yeah, definitely. I love this line. Yeah. It's just great. Mm-hmm. You must have been driving to Las Vegas or something. Yeah, I, I do. I, I see this as uh, autobiographical. Oh yeah, it was. And he, uh, there was an interview he did, uh, or not an interview. He was doing a performance at the Troubadour about six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. And so he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background because people always ask me. And he says, yeah, it's autobiographical. He says. I had a huge house in, in Beverly Hills. Was never there, you know. Had mansion. Forgot the price. I've never been there. They tell me it's nice. <laughs> he said that they lived in hotels and tore out the walls. And he said that he was hanging out with Keith Moon. Oh God! And he said Keith Moon was into destroying stuff. Uh-huh. And believe <laughs> it or not, September of '78 is. The is the date when Keith Moon died. So, oh, really? Uh, yeah, he died of drug overdose at 32. So, so that's so how wild and crazy these guys. He were. was. So, Joe Walsh said that that they went out and Keith took them to a hardware store. They bought some fertilizer. They got some other chemicals. Oh, sounds like a they 9/11 went, here. They went to a uh, gas station. Bought he bought a whole bunch of condoms. They went to their hotel. Keith put together a bomb by putting this con- in the condom fertilizer and this other stuff and flushed it down the toilet and blew out the wall in the hotel. <laughs> wow. Two stories below them. Mm. Like they holy dro- crap. flushed it down. And I so, do mean holy crap. Exactly. <laughs> so, yes, there's truth to what he's talking about here. And he, he, he says that, you know, he didn't actually lose his license. But he lost his wallet one time. Okay. And then, and then he says, you know, my fans, they write me letters now. They send me emails. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, of course, he says, I do have gold records on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, I go to parties, stay until four. And he said that came out of a, a, a time when he would, you know, tell people, I'm going to leave. And he'd fall asleep. He'd wake up a little bit. And, okay, well, I'm going. And he said one time. He got up to leave, and he walked into the closet. So, <laughs> so it's hard to leave when you can't find it's the door. It's hard to leave when you can't find the door. He walked into a closet. That's on. Uh, that's uh, online. If you look it up, Troubadour performance that he did, and he, he's having a lot of fun telling the story about it. Listen to that guitar, man. That's you know what? He's an amazing guy too, because for years and years he was he was drunk. Man, you know, he was intoxicated. I remember the 2007 concert, and I'm sorry if I'm stealing stuff from you, Rob, but at the time I saw him with the Eagles in 2007, he talked about he was sober. It would just have been over a year or two. Wow. So he said for all those years prior to that, probably into Mm -hmm. this time, every morning he'd get up and start drinking. He said on a 60 Minutes Australia interview that he's enjoying music now because he remembers it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he said he got sober when Don Henley and Glenn Fry said, you know, we're putting the Eagles back together. We want you to come, but you've got to be sober. 
And he said in 1994, during all this, he woke up after blacking out on an airplane to Paris. When he arrived, he had his passport, but he did not remember getting on the plane. Like, he could not remember getting on the plane. Can you imagine just waking wow. up mm-hmm. on a, in, a, in Paris on a plane, and you're like, how did I get here? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's so, scary. yeah, it So, yeah, it was pretty crazy. And he talks a little bit about he was afraid not drinking. He wouldn't be funny. He wouldn't be able to write or perform. So, I mean, this guy, I mean, he was a partier for sure. And he's such a – he's an interesting guy. If you see him play, he gets into it. And you, oh, yeah. So, he's – He's been sober for. He's affable too. Yeah. I mean, he he, he you, you talk to, you listen to him talk and he's like, "Hey, I'm your good buddy type yeah, guy." Yeah. You know, it's like okay. There and is one you may want to look at on on uh, online uh, where he plays at Daryl's Daryl's barn. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Daryl's house. Yeah, yeah. Daryl's house. That's a lot of fun. That and it's it's just really neat because it's it is it's more low key and you see that you know that that affable nature that he's you know he's he seems really approachable. Yeah. Good point. He had five successful rock bands he was in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you the know James, Gang. James, James Gang. James Gang. Yeah. That's the first one. Barnstorm. Okay. Don't the Eagles. Yeah. The Party Boys. Ringo Starr and his all-star band. Oh, yeah. I forgot he was in that. And of he course. Was a, he was a his solo, His solo stuff, oh, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, I mean, in terms of being in other bands, and he was actually a session musician for a while. Mm-hmm. Rolling Stone... Uh, put him number 54 in the list of 100 greatest guitarists. Man, he does get into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's solid. So solos, what other solos do you think of for him? Which is oh, probably funk, hard to hear. funk 49. Funk 49, you know. yeah. yeah. The, the, there's one that I like. I'll probably have to make it a staff pick from the 80s, The Confessor. Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, that is a, a good, good song. Yes, that's yes, a great yes. song. Rocky Mountain Way, yeah. All Night Long, mm-hmm. A Life of Illusion, Ordinary average guy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't and, isn't he on the lead on in the city? The mm-hmm. Eagles in yes. the city. Lead yes. vocal, yeah. And I, I I saw a note that he actually got his first guitar at the age of ten. Nice, great Very pick, good. great pick, good choice. So now we're moving on to Brian. Close it out. I recognize this song. Do you now? Should we bring out our platforms and our polyester? Uh-huh. We talked about Rod Stewart and the, the grief he took about going into disco, right? Yeah. Well, so did these guys. This is the Rolling Stones and their song, Miss You. Now, if you talk to... What's know, the matter with you, boy? <laughs> exactly. People said, uh, initially, they thought that Mick was writing about the troubled relationship he was having with Bianca. And okay. the end coming you know, of their of their their relationship, but Mick says no, says no. This is essentially mystery is a is an emotion. It's not necessarily about a, a girl, but to, it's about longing. So that's what he that's what he stuck with. So it's not about Bianca, right? So <laughs> anyway, this song, you know, the the Rolling Stones said this is more of a an R and B. Yeah. Oh, that's what we call it. That's <laughs> what they call it. Now he, he didn't. He was. They were a little. You know, they were a little nervous about having a disco album or a disco record. So no, no, no. This is R and B. But yeah, they, right. But they they interviewed Charlie Watts one time. He said, 
Hell yeah, it's disco influence. He said he and Mick used to go to the discos all the time. They love the music, they love the dance, they love the whole thing. This song was played in discos. So, anyway, the 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 the, the, the album is uh, Some Girls, and this is a time that Mick took over a lot of the production of the album. Oh, because his co-producer, co you know, leader Keith uh, Keith Richards. Was in trouble. Uh huh. He had been arrested for drug possession in Canada, and had to, you know, go through the legal wranglings of that until finally the judge said, "All right, you'll get time served. Plus, you need to play, you know, do a concert. And you continue to go to rehab, but you also need to do a concert for the blind." So that was his sentence. Oh, okay. <laughs> to, get, to get out of his uh, legal troubles in Toronto, right. and and so, I mean. It, I mean, you can hear the disco oh, yeah. beats in here, the, and the strong. Now, it's an interesting story. I'm gonna hear. I know Rob wants to hear this part here. Go ahead. This is for you, Rob. Uh, how many times do we use it today? How many times do we use it? But anyway, this song, Mick and. A gentleman by the name of Billy Preston. Do you remember mm, that? Yeah. Billy Preston is the one that sang a lot of uh, R&B songs back in the day. And in, in 1976, it was after they came off their tour uh, from the previous uh, album, and they, Billy Preston, they started riffing and, and things. Billy Preston, you know, this song is the only song that the Stones have has a very strong bass line. Mm-hmm. Most of the songs that they have are always having the, the rhythm guitar as their as their bassline from Keith Richards, but this is the only one where, since he was away from it, you know, because basically Charlie, or not Charlie Watts, um, Bill Wyman, who was their bassist back in the day, said that he had had he actually gone home the, for the day, but Billy Preston was in the studio with him, and he picks up his 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 bass and he starts doing it to what you hear. If you can hear, let me shut up for a minute so you can hear the bassline. It's a very strong, that's Billy Preston's influence on it. So when Wyman comes back to the studio the next day, he says, Mick says, so why don't you uh, pick it up where, uh, you know, what Billy was doing. And Wyman heard it and he said, oh yeah, that's it. So <laughs> they finished the track. Wyman's doing Billy Preston's bass. Uh, it is lines. Wyman though. Oh yeah. So Billy Preston's handprints are all over this album or, or this song. That's cool. Well, albums that were released in September of 1978. All four KISS members released a solo album. Oh, yeah. Sticks, Pieces of Aid. I'm surprised no one's picked that one up yet. Molly Hatchet, Molly Hatchet. David Bowie had Stage. Yes had Tomato, Tormato, and that was really an awful one. The Ramones, Black Sabbath, Leo Sayer. Blue Oyster Colt, Ted Nugent all had albums at that time. But we're going to go on to our our uh, comedy pick, and we're going to bring it back to WKRP in Cincinnati. Ah. It's a helicopter. And, it's and if you don't remember way. this, guys, this is hilarious. Flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's this was, came out in 78, but it came out in November. Uh, but happy That's Les Nessman. <laughs> w K. You got to look this up on YouTube. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll include that on our Facebook page. The copter seems to be 
circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object. Uh, <laughs> perhaps a skydiver plumbing to, to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. <laughs> Third. There's no parachutes yet. <laughs> been What the Riff, September 1978. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Wayne. I'm Rob. I'm Brian. And I'm Bruce. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to What the Riff. We hope you enjoyed the songs we had on tap today. Please tell your friends about us. Check us out at whattheriff.com and follow us on Facebook. Special thanks to our sponsors, Wright Column Financial, Stanton Electric, and Marbury Creative Group. That's all for this week. See you next week on What the Riff.